At the beginning of my career, I was definitely a milk pusher. I thought that that was the right thing to do. That's what I was trained. But with my own eyes, I started seeing the problems that dairy causes for children. And so finally, when I learned more about plant-based nutrition, I felt comfortable saying, you know, this is just not something that I want to be recommending for children anymore. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Is it possible for a child to get everything they need from a vegan diet? Well, no meat, no dairy, no problem. Those are the words of my guest today. Dr. Yami is here, and she says that children are the future, but it should be a future without dairy. In recent years, studies have shown that milk, in fact, does not do a body good, doing far more harm than good to developing bodies, and those of adults for that matter. And because of that, she says it is time to kick the dairy habit. And Dr. Yami knows exactly what it is that she's talking about, too, because she is a board-certified pediatrician, a certified lifestyle medicine physician, an author, a speaker, and a Food for Life instructor. But perhaps most of all, she is also a champion for the power of a plant-based diet. Indeed, class is about to be in session. So here is the curriculum. She's going to talk about the recommendations that should be in the next set of dietary guidelines that still call for three servings of dairy every day for children. So we're going to get her opinion on those recommendations. And then we're going to learn about the negative health consequences of kids who do, in fact, eat a lot of cheese, drink a lot of milk. What risks do they face? And then parents who are new to the idea of not having milk and dairy as part of their child's diet, maybe they're a little bit confused. So what should they be feeding their kids instead? Well, Dr. Yami's going to have some replacement ideas. And what made her go from being a milk pusher, in her words, to being a plant based advocate. Why did she decide to go plant-based? You got a little hint of that at the top of the show, but we're going to get the full story when we speak with her in just a little bit. And then class will continue, this time with a different professor. Dr. Jim Loomis will be taking over the reins, doing a little vegan 101 and vegan 201 mashed them together when we open up the doctor's mailbag. Now, Dr. Loomis is from the documentary, The Game Changers. He's going to be here answering your questions and some pretty strong ones too. You guys wanted to test him this week. And I will tell you that this vegan doctor, he passed with straight A's. And now he's giving you the straight knowledge about vegan diets. But before we get to Dr. Loomis and the Q&A, we start with Dr. Yami and vegan diets for kids. 
Dr. Yami. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Chuck. So happy to be here. Let's start with the uh, with the dietary guidelines. You know, the recommendations that are currently under view, they call for kids to eat, I believe it is three servings of dairy a day. And knowing what we do, what do you think about those recommendations? I do not agree with that. Now, I will say at the beginning of my career, I've been practicing for over 11 years now. At the beginning of my career, I was definitely a milk pusher. I thought that that was the right thing to do. That's what I was trained. I was just following the guidelines. But as I went along with my own eyes, I started seeing the problems that dairy causes for children. The ones that we see immediately from birth Babies that have milk protein allergy and start having bleeding from their guts, they have colic, they're very fussy babies. But then if they make it through that stage without having any, you know, reaction to dairy, when they're toddlers, they start having constipation, chronic abdominal pain. And I even saw kids that had severe anemia because they were taking in so much dairy. And so finally, when I learned more about plant-based nutrition, I felt comfortable saying, you know, this is just not something that I want to be recommending for children anymore. And I think that consuming dairy, especially at that level, probably creates more harm than it does good. The anemia you were speaking of, was that because of the bleeding you referenced or is there something else at play? So we do know that when we take in cow's milk, especially in young children, there can be some microscopic bleeding in the gut. But the main reason that we sometimes see anemia in toddlers is because it competes with iron for absorption, but also for children that are taking in so much dairy, they displace other sources of iron in their diet because they're just drinking so much milk. Can you speak to the notion that children do, in fact, need calcium from milk to get strong bones to prevent fractures when they're out there playing around on the playground? Well, one of the things that really made me feel very comfortable in my position against dairy is the review study that came out at the beginning of this year by Dr. Walter Willett and Dr. David Ludwig from the New England Journal of Medicine um, called Milk and Health. And if you look at the study and one of the graphs that they have on there with milk consumption and hip fractures, it seems like the countries that have some of the highest milk consumption actually also have some of the highest hip fractures. So it doesn't seem to be that higher intakes of milk is actually protecting our bones. One of the things that I tell my families is to remember that we form strong bones primarily through weight-bearing exercise. Yes, we have to have adequate consumption of calcium, B12, vitamin D, those things. But in light of adequate consumption, really it's moving our bodies the way that kids love to do, playing, jumping, climbing, and doing all the things that normal kids do. Let's talk about the long-term consequences of drinking milk starting at a young age. What do we know about the risk from starting at such a young age as we move into adulthood? Well, you know, milk is a hormonal substance. So we know that we're getting exposed to increased levels of insulin growth factor one, progestins, estrogens, hormones. It increases our cardiovascular disease risk that, you know, saturated fat in dairy and especially in cheese, which is our biggest source of saturated fat in the standard American diet, increased prostate cancer risk, increased endometrial cancer risk, and then also for children, atopic disease. So things like eczema and asthma may also be linked to our dairy intake. So there's a lot. That's why I always say now that the the risks of consuming dairy outweigh the benefits that may be there. 
Now, okay, so now particularly new parents might be saying, well, if we're not getting calcium and vitamin D for milk, where should we be getting it? Where could we possibly get it? So what would you say to those parents? Well, first of all, vitamin D is not naturally present in milk and any mammalian milk and including human milk. So it's one of those things that's low in mammalian milk. We primarily get it from the sun, but it's put into products. So it's fortified there. So vitamin D we can get from supplements and from the sun. As far as calcium, there's lots of plant foods that have calcium, but the easiest way for toddlers and children to get it is through fortified plant milks. So an unsweetened fortified soy milk or maybe a pea protein milk, a couple of servings per day is really all that I recommend. And then the rest from food, beans and greens is what I traditionally say, but things like calcium set tofu, almonds, figs, tahini, white beans. Those are just a sampling of plant foods that are really high in calcium and getting a variety of those foods will meet the calcium needs for children. All right. Can we have some real talk here? Because we're we're talking about beans and greens, which are fantastic. But I feel like a lot of parents are fighting this uphill battle to compete with slick, you know, highly ultra processed, low nutrient dense foods that have superheroes on them, cartoon characters, you know, YouTubers, whatever the case may be. And, And that, you know, that is those are some powerful forces. So how do we get children interested in eating those healthier foods? How do we make beans and greens the amazing things that they are actually in the children's eyes. The only way to encourage a child to eat a food is by consistent and repetitive exposure. That's the only way we learn to like food. So you just have to keep making those foods. You have to keep offering those foods to your child and creating a positive environment. So you want your household, you want your life to be filled with these whole plant foods. I'm not saying you can never eat processed foods. I mean, we live in the real world. We're going to eat those every once in a while, but try to fill your life with whole plant foods as much as possible. But like I said before, when it comes to getting sufficient calcium, just a couple of servings of a fortified plant milk is sufficient. You don't need to be stressing about your child's calcium intake. And I want to go back to the dietary guidelines here because this is the first time that they are going to include some recommendations for infants uh, up through age two. And what would you like to see as far as a healthy diet for that young age group Uh, aside from just taking dairy out altogether, what are some important things for parents to keep in mind? Well, definitely an emphasis on whole plant foods. And for the little ones, as much as possible, mothers that can breastfeed and breastfeed for a year beyond, that would be my dream come true. There's definitely mothers that can't for various reasons, but any breast milk is better than no breast milk. And then when we start the complementary foods in babies between four and six months, it's going to be really emphasizing, you know, those greens, the vegetables, fruits, beans, whole grains, and then just continuing that trend onward. Now, you said at the top of the interview that you were a big milk pusher early on in your practice. So what caused you to go plant-based? What did you see? What did you hear? Well, actually, my decision to go plant-based was pretty random. I was reading a book called Born to Run, and in that book, they talk about the Tarahumara Indians who are primarily plant-based and run all the time and are calm and happy. And I was like, well, that sounds good. I'm going to give that a try. And it was just an experiment. And ironically, since we're talking about milk, I suffered from chronic constipation for over 30 years of my life. I thought it was genetic. I thought it was just normal. It runs in my family. 
I had to take Miralax for people that know, and, and pediatrics call it vitamin M because so many children suffer from constipation. Within three days of eating a whole food plant-based diet, it was cured. And now I call myself a super pooper. So, I mean, it's it was a big eye-opening experience for me. And that's when I really started looking at the literature and what does it say about plant-based diets, not just for adults, but for children. And after that, I was just, you know, it just began my journey of learning more. And that's when I became a food for life instructor. And now I teach it not just to my students, but also to my patients and their parents. How do those parents react when you, you know, teach them about these things? I'm sure that they're so used to coming in and getting a prescription and being on their merry way. And then you're hitting them with all kinds of nutrition science. So, well, how do those conversations tend to go? Well, I think that younger parents now are really open-minded and they want to hear what's best for their children. And more and more, especially in the past two years, I found that parents aren't so surprised or shocked when I say that dairy might not be the thing that we thought it was. I think the word is getting out. We have almost 20 commercially available plant milks on the market. There's so many that products that are coming that are telling people, well, maybe we don't need to be drinking cow's milk. And so I think that families are more and more receptive. Is it always easy for them? No, because like I said, we live in the modern world, but I think that parents really are trying to do their best to feed their children a healthy diet. We have a question from a viewer over in Germany. I think that this is really relevant to what it is that we're talking about. Uh, they say, what is the difference between a plant-based diet for babies and kids versus the one eaten by adults? They say here in Germany, many physicians actually warn against having a baby eat a plant-based diet. Yes. And you're going to see that all over the world, including the United States, because of guidelines like this that tell you know, doctors that it's not safe to not drink milk and not eat meat and those kinds of things. So that's not an uncommon thing that I hear from people that seek out my advice. And what I would say, the one thing to keep in mind whenever you're feeding little children is that you do want to make sure that you emphasize variety and calorie density. So you don't want to feed a little child like a raw vegan diet that has, you know, a lot of fiber because we already eat a lot of fiber, but it has too much fiber, too much bulk and not enough calories. And it's not something that I see that happens very often for parents, but otherwise it's the same. You want to make sure you're getting fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds, avocado, offering those things to your babies and your children and making sure that they are eating when they're hungry and stopping when they're satisfied and following growth curves with their pediatrician or with their physician. I'd like you. You have a lot of energy and a lot of great ideas. You're awesome. Um, so if people want to get in touch with you, I know that you're you're all over the place. You have your own podcast, Veggie Doctor Radio, um, you, which, your website, VeggieFitKids.com. Talk to me a little bit about that. So I actually started this at the beginning of my journey exactly because of the question from Germany, because families were coming to me saying, well, I've heard that this is not safe. So I wanted to start a resource that had lots of resources on it for families that were wanting to raise plant-based kids. So on there, you will find frequently asked questions, a list of resources, and we're working on an evidence-based section that has links to articles for those families that want to see the data. We're working on that for now. But also my podcast right now, we are running a pediatric series where it's all about children. So tune in to Veggie Dr. Ray for that. Uh, Dr. Yami, thank you so very much for joining us this morning. You're also on uh, social media, right? At Dr. Yami spelled out. Yes. At the Dr. Yami, Instagram and Facebook. 
There you go. All right. Mandatory follows, everybody. The Dr. Yami. Thank you so much. We will talk to you again soon. Thank you. You can find a link to Dr. Yami's podcast as well as all of her social media accounts in the episode notes. I highly recommend giving her a follow. And you best believe that we will have her on again in the future to do a deeper dive on all of this. As usual, on the exam room live where that interview originated from, we we don't have all the time in the world that we typically do when we have these long form interviews here on the podcast. But I really like this one, so I wanted to give you a taste of it. And so the plan is to have her back in the future for a long form question and answer session right here on the exam room podcast, especially because this is such a pivotal moment for nutrition, a big year for food with the dietary guidelines now under review. All of this more important than ever. And it's such good information too for parents who still aren't accustomed to the idea of raising children without meat and dairy on their plate. It can be a hard, hard thing to grasp at first. Most parents weren't brought up like that. So naturally, there are questions. And it's important that we have these conversations to bring forward some answers and what the science truly says. Moving on. It is time now to open up the doctor's mailbag, health and nutrition style. Dr. Jim Loomis, he will be here now answering your questions for the remainder of the podcast. And I assure you that there are some very good ones in this crop that will be raising our nutrition IQs. And for those who are not yet familiar with Dr. Loomis, he is the medical director of the Barnard Medical Center, and he was also featured in the documentary, The Game Changers. And just for good fun, because this is the kind of guy that he is, he ran an Ironman triathlon when he was 60, a feat that he attributes to solid training and a plant-based diet. So are you ready to learn? All right, let's put on those thinking caps and get some answers. Here are some of the questions you're going to be learning about. Can you get enough calcium without eating dairy? Dr. Yami talked a little bit about that. Dr. Loomis is going to take the deeper dive, the vegan 201 aspect of that. And then we're going to go maybe even advanced, advanced. We're going to go doctorate class when he answers the question, does calcium from plants interfere with iron absorption? And is it possible for cholesterol to drop too low on a plant-based diet? Well, he's going to answer that as well. Ready to rock and roll? All right, let's open up the doctor's mailbag with Dr. Jim Loomis. Dr. Loomis, first question. It's a question from Vanessa. She wants to know whether the keto diet and intermittent fasting are healthy. So that's a that's a kind of that's a book length question, uh, but I'll try <laughs> to be succinct. And if you really want to get this the skinny, no pun intended, on on intermittent fasting and keto diets, uh, um, you know. So if you think about what a ketogenic diet is, um, you know, we, our brains have to have sugar. Uh, glucose to function and, and our brains can't store sugar. So we have to lie, rely on the glucose, the glycan stored in our livers primarily 
in the form of glycogen to maintain a steady state of, of, of glucose in our bloodstream. And when we enter a starvation state, when we've run out of food, um, and eventually we will deplete all of the muscle glycogen in our bodies. And, and so we can no longer, it makes it very difficult to sustain um, uh, uh, blood glucose levels in the, in the, in the bloodstream. And so our brains start to become starved for energy, and that's not a good thing. So we evolved the mechanism is kind of the end game of starvation, really, um, to, to utilize what are called ketone bodies uh, to keep us alive. It, it's a last dis effort to fuel our brains to keep us alive till we can find another meal before we starve to death. So the original ketogenic diet was famine, starvation. Um, and it, was, it came about through, um, through calorie restriction you know, because we were starving. So the idea that we should be trying to create an artificial ketogenic state by dietary manipulation just doesn't make sense from an evolutionary standpoint at all. Um, and and the, the kind of the dietary patterns that are required to create ketosis um, are pretty extreme, uh, very low carb, high fat, high protein diets. And we know that over the long run, um, that, that those dietary patterns associated with an increased risk for many chronic diseases, heart disease, many kinds of cancer, um, such as that. Um, now, intermittent fasting is a little bit different, and, and I think there probably are some health benefits potentially for intermittent fasting. Um, at the tail end of intermittent fasting, some people will develop mild ketosis, um, but, th- that, but that's how we're designed to develop ketosis is, is through starvation. Um, and there's been a lot of research by a, a researcher out of UCLA named Walter Longo. And he has a great book called The Longevity Diet, which goes into detail about some of his research. So, you know, at first it may seem counterintuitive that if, you, uh, if, if you're starving, that somehow your immune system would be ramped up and, and which might protect you against certain kinds of cancer and things like that. But if you really, again, think about it from an evolutionary standpoint and realize that fasting was really the end game of, of, of our lifespan, unless we found some more food. Um, if, if the mere act of fasting would, would ramp up our immune system so we could heal infections and, 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 and uh, heal wounds and fight infections to keep us alive long enough to find that next meal, then that would make perfect sense. And that's what some of the research suggests. There's also a lot of research around weight loss and insulin sensitivity and such as that. So intermittent fasting, I think, is, is something that, that, that um, uh, does have some health benefit. The, uh, the, the, the way I, there's a couple ways that people commonly do it. One is called a 16-8 strategy. So it's time-restricted eating where you, you, you take no, caloric, no calories in between, most people will say 8 p.m. to noon. Uh, you can drink water and black coffee and green tea, but nothing with sugar. And you don't restrict your calories. You just restrict the, the feeding window. So you take all those calories in the same between uh, noon and, say, 8 p.m. Another strategy some people use is called a 5-2 strategy, where two days a week you do a 24-hour water fast. Um, as far as I know, there's no research to suggest that one is more beneficial than the other. So ketosis, not so much. Intermittent fasting, I, I think um, there, there, it's, there's some reasonable evidence-based health reasons to consider it uh, for some people. All right. Next question. We know that two of the big benefits of a plant-based diet are that it can lower your blood pressure and lower your cholesterol. With that in mind, Amanda wants to know, is it possible for someone to have too low cholesterol or blood pressure on a plant-based diet? So, you know, it it depends. Uh, And I I say that 
um, especially around blood pressure. It depends on if you're on medications or not. Um, that, you know, if you look at the normal range of blood pressure, some people come in and their blood pressure is 90 over 60, and, and that's normal. Some people come in, their blood pressure is 120 over 70, and that's normal. If your normal blood pressure is 120 over 70 and you suddenly were to drop it to 90 over 60, or if you're, you know, you've got high blood pressure and you over-treat it, um, then in fact you will have symptoms from that. You get lightheaded, dizzy, when you stand up, you feel like you're gonna pass out, fatigue, draggy, things like that. And that's why it's so important when people do start to adapt to healthier lifestyle through diet and exercise and they're on blood pressure medicine that you let your doctor know what you're doing and you monitor your blood pressure very closely because oftentimes I've seen people come off their blood pressure medicine literally in a matter of days um, um, who have really gone on a low fat, high fiber, low salt, high potassium diet uh, combined with exercise. Um, so, you know, if you're not taking medications and then, and then unless there's some untoward illness, um, that's, that's, you know, you're dehydrated or, uh, you've got a blood infection, which is making your blood pressure go artificially low. Um, th- there's really no, no low end. There's no, there's, there's no concern about having low blood pressure. I mean, in fact, my blood pressure used to run about 135 over 85, which is, would be considered high these days. Uh, and after I went plant-based to now, it, now it runs about 105 over, over 60. And, and, uh, you know, that's normal for me now. Um, now, cholesterol, kind of the same story. Um, there, there is some theoretic concern about very, very low cholesterols, which have been driven down through, through uh, especially with medications. And I'm talking about total cholesterols in the 60, 70 range, which I've seen on occasion. Um, and th- there, there's some controversy that it may affect our mood and increase risk for suicide and things like that. That, that research is not great, but, but it is a theoretic concern. Um, now dropping your cholesterol through, you know, ideally what we, what we want is to have your total cholesterol 150 or less your, uh, HDL 70 or less closer to 50 preferably. So, um, you can certainly do that with a plant-based diet and there's really no floor for that. Um, um, but if you're on medications and you go on a plant-based diet and your cholesterol gets super, super low, it might be something you want to talk to your to your doctor about. Next question comes from Jacqueline. She writes, I believe calcium slows the absorption of iron in people who have anemia. Is it the same, though, if the calcium comes from plants? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when we take in iron from meat, uh, what we're what we're what we're consuming is a form of iron called heme iron. So it's iron that's bound to hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is the, is the protein in our red blood cells that carry oxygen. It's actually what makes our blood red. So basically, when we consume dead animals, we're also consuming dead animal blood. And that's where our iron comes from, which is kind of disgusting if you think about it. So um, the, the, the problem is, um, yes, there are some things like calcium, which can interfere with heme iron absorption. Um, heme iron, it turns out, is a very potent pro-oxidant and creates inflammation. Uh, and there's an association between getting too much iron and heart disease and cancer and diabetes and things like that. Now, there is iron in plants. Green leafy vegetables, legumes, molasses all have a, a lot of iron. But the iron is not bound to hemoglobin. It's bound to uh, – it's, it's, so it's called non-heme iron. It is more difficult for our bodies to absorb. It doesn't seem to be affected by the calcium. Uh, but you do need to co-ingest a source of vitamin um, – uh, with, 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 a source of vitamin C – to facilitate the absorption of the heme iron. 
And so the idea is you want to put a little lemon juice or lime juice in a salad dressing or squeeze it over a salad, put a little lot, finish a soup or a stew with a little lemon or lime juice, you know, red bell peppers, bell peppers have a tremendous amount of vitamin C, snacking on citrus fruit, putting citrus fruit in your salads, things like that. Um, so, um, the other interesting thing is our bodily, our body will absorb as much heme iron as, as we ingest. We can't, we, we end up storing any extra iron we need and it stores in the liver, which can cause problems, a condition called hemochromatosis, which can cause inflammation in the liver. A non-heme iron, uh, once our iron stores are replete, the body will stop absorbing it. So it's kind of more self-regulating, uh, which I think is a much healthier way to get your iron. All right. A uh, question from BR comes to us at 12.04. Let's uh, dial up your old game changers background, your athletics background. Uh, BR writes, hello, doctor. Please discuss appropriate daily grams of fat for athletes. Well, um, athletes have no different requirements for fat than, than anybody else. Um, I think that um, – so if you look at the natural macronutrient ratios of a whole food plant, of a diverse whole food plant-based diet, it's about 75% unprocessed carbs, about 15% protein, about 10% fat. So I think maintaining a, a, a fat, a, a fat intake of no more than 15% of your total calories. So you can do the math backwards. There's not nine gram, nine calories per gram of fat. Um, um, then, then, um, then I think you're fine. Um, you know, the, the question we usually get is about protein, not, not fat. Um, and what's interesting is, uh, yes, athletes may need a little more protein, but athletes also need more calories. So if you double your calorie intake, you're doubling your protein intake. So calories and fat and I mean, fat and protein, uh, that, that shouldn't be the concern. It's really about getting enough calories, especially if you're uh, uh, um, performing more intense endurance athletics or, or intense training regimens around strength training. Uh, Denise here getting kind of Shakespearean with the phrasing of her question, beans to soak or not to soak. Uh, is there an impact on phylate levels or does cooking alone take care of it? Would love to get an overview on that. So this idea that, uh, uh, phylates are some type of anti-nutrients is fairly prevalent in the kind of paleo carnivore community that we shouldn't be eating beans because of these, these, uh, this phytic, phytic acid, these phylates, which absorb, which can uh, uh, impair the absorption of other vitamins and minerals. That, that's the concern. And in fact, beans do have phylates, right? But uh, when you cook beans, uh, it deactivates the phylates or lowers the level. And so, so it's not functionally a concern. Um, um, the, um, I don't know of any evidence to suggest that soaking the beans changes the, uh, the, the phylate level. It's more cooking the way I understand it. I think that uh, uh, the soak to not soak uh, beans is more prevalent in the Instant Pot community. Uh, and and I, I've cooked beans both ways. Um, I, I think you can shorten the cooking time a little bit if you, if you, if you cook them, if you soak them. But uh, if you're using an instant pot, the difference between soaked and unsoaked beans is is um, not that much. Um, now I have to say, if you've had beans stored for a long time, you know, dried beans in the cabinet, they do tend to get harder, and soaking those may be of some benefit. But from a nutrition standpoint, I do not know of any evidence that soaking the beans versus not soaking the beans before cooking them, especially in an instant pot, uh, makes any difference. 
All right, 12.11, question from Laura. Oh boy, let's get her some help. I'm finding it impossible to lose weight on starches. It seems like I can only lose weight eating tons of green vegetables. I'm in my late 50s. Does metabolism really slow down? Well, um, it does slow down a little bit. Uh, but, but, but oftentimes when we, you know, weight loss is a very complicated and metabolism is a very complicated kind of balance between calories in calories out. The problem is it's not exact. That's not exactly true. Right. And so, so when we eat plant-based foods that are processed versus plant-based foods that are unprocessed, um, there's a huge difference. So when we take an apple and we eat an apple, the hundred calories in the apple, um, our bodies have to do work to break up the apple or the, the, the nutrients or the, the, the pectin, the soluble fiber absorbs water, slows the progression through our digestive tract. We slowly absorb those calories. Our insulin levels don't spike. We all is good. We, we take the same apple and turn it into apple juice and we drink it that our sugar levels spike. Those calories become readily available. And, and so physiologically they're completely different and the fiber doesn't make us feel full you know, on and on. So, um, so in, in general, when people reach a weight loss plateau, there's several things I typically want to look at. So one is, is being sure is really taking a close look at the nutrient density of their food. Uh, you really want to try to eat foods that have less than about 700 calories per pound. Um, and so that's, you know, unprocessed carbs, uh, starchy, whole food vegetables like potatoes and, and sweet potatoes and things like that. Uh, uh, fruit, vegetables, obviously legumes, um, great sources of nutrient dense food. Um, on the other side of the, of the graph, um, you know, avocados, um, sometimes people, uh, there's two foods that people tend to overconsume even on a plant-based diet, which can create a weight loss plateau. So avocados are one, they have about 750 uh, calories per pound. You really want to limit avocados, use it like a condiment. The other one are nuts and nut butters. Uh, I have a weakness for peanut butter and I have to be very careful because I could sit there and eat tablespoons of peanut butter. You know, peanut butter has about a thousand calories per pound uh, and nuts as well. And so you have to be very careful with those two things. So you just, you really want to um, um, be careful with that. Sometimes I'll actually have patients um, um, use a, uh, uh, an app like MyFitnessPal or, or Chronometer and do a 24, 48-hour um, um, food diary and just be sure that they're, they're hitting their, their fiber mark, which is going to make you feel full and is, a, and is a sign of nutrient density. You want to shoot between 50 and 100 grams of, of fiber a day. And then also limiting their fat intake. So again, as I just said, no more than 15%, preferably less than 10%. And the reason is for every, for every gram of, of fat, that you consume as opposed to carbohydrate or protein, you double the calories. Um, and then the second side of the equation is the exercise side, just to be sure that, um, you know, you're, you're staying physically active. That helps rev up your metabolism. Um, sometimes what happens is people start an exercise program and the amount of work they do, which predicts calories was a lot when they started, but then as they get in better shape, that same amount of exercise doesn't raise your heart rate. So you're not burning the same kind of calories. So using your heart rate to kind of determine if you're burning enough calories is a rough rule of thumb. It's 220 minus your age. And you want to keep your heart rate between 60 and 80% of that number between 30 minutes and an hour every day um, uh, is, is, is ideal. Um, and then lastly is uh, if, if, if there's still issues is there are other things that can affect our metabolism in particular thyroid function. Um, thyroid disease is, is relatively common in, 
in people, um, um, young and middle-aged women uh, in particular. So it, it, being sure that you've had some recent blood work and be sure you're, that your thyroid's okay is also important. All right. Uh, COVID-related question comes to us from Linda at 1211. She wants to know, should I be taking zinc for COVID protection? Does that boost the immune system? So um, there is a little bit of research around around using zinc to prevent uh, and to treat cold symptoms, uh, common cold. Uh, coronavirus, other species, other strains of the coronavirus um, are one of the common, are one of the causes of, of common cold. Um, I do not know of any research to suggest that that um, taking zinc, zinc supplements uh, specifically protects you against coronavirus, uh, the COVID-19. Um, you know, like any micronutrient, um, um, it is important to maintain an adequate intake of, of zinc. And um, um, you can, there are some plant-based foods that contain zinc. Um, there's a great resource I like. It's not completely plant-based, but but the, if you go and look at the lists of food, uh, most of the, the high nutrient dense foods for zinc or calcium, or potassium, all are plant based. It's called the world's healthiest food. And if you just Google world's healthiest food and then zinc, uh, it will give you a list of foods that have that have lots of zinc in it. And so you can uh, try to get plenty of zinc through, through dietary zinc through the foods that you eat. Another COVID question. This one comes to us from Eddie. He wants to know any extra measures I should take post-operation with COVID-19? Just had surgery on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that we should all be precautious no matter what our, what our what state we're in, if you will. Now, it's especially important if you have underlying chronic diseases like obesity or high blood pressure or cholesterol, uh, um, uh, heart disease, asthma, things like that. Uh, but, but just simply having surgery uh, doesn't necessarily put you at increased risk um, um, for, for COVID. And so I think the same precautions that we all should is social distancing, wash your hands religiously, um, um, wear a mask, such as that. Eddie, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me personally on Facebook. I've been through what it is that you just went through. So if you have any recovery questions, just let me know. I'd be happy to uh, help you out as best as I can. Uh, Follow up question to the peanut butter one. And and I will tell you that I, too, am a sucker for peanut butter. I wrestle with that sometime when I'm making a smoothie and I've got all of these great fruits and vegetables in there. And I'm like, a little bit of peanut butter would taste pretty good. But then I'm like, no, no, let's keep this one low fat. So uh, Edith is also a fan of peanut butter, but she wants to know if we have to limit peanut butter consumption, can we eat boiled peanuts? What do you think about that? Yeah, so I think um, that's fine. Uh, boiled peanuts, roasted peanuts, they still have a lot of fat though, right? And so that's why you have to be careful with the serving size because I know if I got a big thing of boiled peanuts or shelled peanuts, I'm at the baseball game, uh, or uh, especially the peanuts that have been shelled for me, um, I could easily eat handfuls. So that's why I sometimes will suggest that people do a, a 48-hour um, a food diary. I like the 48 hours. So if you have peanuts one day, you cut back a little the next day. But really, um, um, uh, really just being careful about your fat intake because, again, peanuts – no matter how they're prepared, roasted, boiled, um, um, still have a fairly high fat content. And so a serving side is probably no more than a, you know, quarter of a cup at most um, uh, for the whole day. 
Time for just a couple more. Uh, we were talking about fasting a little bit earlier. Pam's got a question. How do you feel about extended juice fasting? Well, um, you do have to be careful that, you know, depending on if you're talking about just using like carrot and celery juice, um, that's really almost the equivalent of fasting because that's a very low calorie diet. You're probably talking less than 500 uh, uh, calories a day. It may play a role in certain health conditions, but it needs to be medically supervised um, because you do, you, you, you need to be sure that your electrolytes stay in line, that you're, um, uh, you're staying hydrated and such as that. So, you know, any fast more than a couple of days really needs to be done under, especially when you're talking about longer fasts, a week or two weeks, uh, really needs to be um, um, undertaken uh, under the supervision of a medical professional. All right. Let's see here. I'm trying to find a really good question to take things home for us today. Um, all right. Wait, while you're thinking, I want to make, I want to come back to what we talked about earlier. This is, this is very important about the, yeah. the genetics, right? Yeah. 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 I hear every day people say, uh, I have type two diabetes because it runs in my family and that's why I have it. But what we forget is to the point of our whole early discussion, what else runs in our families? What do we inherit? from our families. We inherit our plates of food, right? And what we inherit in our on our plates is much more important for our overall health than what we inherit in our genes in most situations. And, and it's something we don't think enough about. So your genes do not have to be your destiny. Um, your plates oftentimes create that destiny. And, and so choosing what's on your plate is going to be much more important than choosing your parents. Most. So, so true. I mean, I remember growing up and I think a, a big part of what got me into the jackpot that I, I eventually got to at 420 pounds were those nightly trips through the drive through or going to grandma's house after school and she would have this jar of bacon grease on top of the stove. And it didn't matter, Dr. Loomis, what she was cooking. She always oh, yeah. put a scoop of that grease in there. It, I mean, it could be grits. It could be she loved to fry bologna and bacon grease. So, you know, I mean, that just really set me on the path for that unhealthy yeah. future. You must have grown up in the South somewhere because that sounds yeah. like my upbringing. <laughs> Southern Virginia, my friend. Yeah, Southern yeah. Virginia. So, yeah. you know, and, and I, you know, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. So where did I learn that I go to a Nats game? That's when I eat, drink a beer and eat a hot dog, right? Or it's 4th of July. So let's barbecue some ribs and have some hamburgers or it's someone's birthday. Let's have cake and ice cream. The little league team one, let's take it one out for pizza. I learned that from my family and, and, you know, none of which are healthy choices but but that we you know that becomes the normal way we think about what we do because again what as i mentioned earlier that's what we've learned so anyway i, I meant to say that earlier but i think it was important enough to bring it back up so uh, oh absolutely that's that's such a key point such a key point uh let's wrap up uh the doctor's mailbag we're going to close it up with this final question from chim at twelve twenty one. wants to know how do you cure gerd on a vegan diet well so um so GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. So it's acid reflux. Um, so there's many causes of acid reflux. So sometimes it can be a mechanical problem where you've got a hiatal hernia or something like that. But um, um, in general, we know that that you need to be careful about you know acidy foods. You want to oftentimes you know losing weight will help. Probably the most important thing I found is not eating within three hours of going to bed because uh, it's that's a gravity issue. Uh, when we eat, that stimulates acid. We lay down, that's just an open pipe. Um, and especially when you've got some chronic reflux where you've got maybe a little irritation, which affects the sphincter where the esophagus meets the stomach. So it, the, the food kind of has an open pipe, which just makes it worse. 
sometimes even elevating the head of your bed a little bit uh, at, at night is helpful. Um, um, but things like alcohol, anti-inflammatory medications like Advil, Aleve, uh, uh, being careful with the, with the acidy foods. Some people don't tolerate sp- spicy foods, but the high fiber, low fat diet in general, um, 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 really helps settle things down. It, it, it slows the gastric emptying. So there's not, there's not a lot of, uh, it, the, the, the soaks up a lot of the acid, things like that. So, um, yeah, so if you go, uh, Dr. Michael Greger at nutritionfacts.org has a few great videos on acid reflux. So if you go to go there and uh, nutritionfacts.org and just search for the ones on reflux, he has a lot of great information, evidence-based about sort of some specific things about diet and, and uh, reflux. That's funny, man. That late night eating, that's a lesson that we just seem to learn in life over and over and over again. It's for whatever reason, when we get tired, it just seems like that's when the hunger hits. And right before you go to bed, you get that snack. And then even if you don't get heartburn, I know that when I indulge right before I go to bed, I wake up feeling sluggish. Right. No, that's right. And um, yeah, so, you know, again, try not to eat within three hours of going to bed. I found is probably the most effective strategy to help with, with acid reflux as a starter. And the Exam Room Live airs Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. I really hope that you can join us for an episode or two. And you can send us your questions there live during the show, or you can always tweet them to us at Chuck Carroll WLC or at PCRM. Just make sure that you use the hashtag Exam Room Podcast. Or... What you could also do is ask that question to Dr. Loomis one-on-one or any one of our other wonderful doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center. You've seen them on the show. You've heard them here on the podcast. And yes, they can also be your real doctor. This isn't like the doctors on TV. These are the fine folks at the Barnard Medical Center who want to help you take control of your health. So we're talking about Dr. Loomis and Dr. Vanita Rahman and Dr. Jasmine Sardana, and then our wonderful dietitians like Lee Crosby, you know her, the Fiber Queen, and Susan Levin and Maggie Neola. All of them would love to work with you to become a healthier version of yourself. And it's so important that you do that because they can help you whether you've been vegan for years or you are just getting going on a plant-based diet. So here's the score. Right now, telemedicine appointments are available in the following states. Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland, Virginia, Missouri, Arizona, Colorado, Massachusetts, Kentucky, Florida, Georgia, and right here in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. All of those locations, you can make that appointment today by visiting barnardmedical.org or by calling 202-527-7500. 202-527-7500 or barnardmedical.org. And yes, we have a link to that in the episode notes as well. And if you haven't already done so, please also subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee and leave us a five-star rating because when you do that, you help us climb even higher 
in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people who truly need this life-changing and life-saving information to find it. So please help us and do your part to make the world a healthier place. It's going to do it for us today. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>